So the New Testament reading is in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 to 30. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay... Oh, excuse me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon, and is out of his mind. Why listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. This reading is taken from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord your God. Are you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. 
You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost. But with force and harshness, you have ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild animals, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, but I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, so that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. I don't know about you, but my subjective experience of the last couple of months has been a growing awareness of my own mortality. Now, it may be that this is just creeping middle age. 
as the marriages of friends give way to divorces and divorces give way to remarriages and the generation above me that once seemed eternal gives way to illness and infirmity and I start thinking, is it me next? And I, I know that statistically speaking, more elderly people die over the winter months than do over the summer. But even so, I've been aware of death in those around me in a way that has felt more than normal. From the national outpourings of tributes to Lemmy and Bowie and Rickman to the funeral of a friend, to death and suffering on a grand scale in Syria, Iraq and surrounding countries, it all feels very real and life seems very fragile. And I am left wondering in my darker moments what the point of it all is. And I suspect I'm not alone in occasionally struggling to find meaning in life and death. I often think when I'm preaching, it's me I'm talking to most of the time. I just hope I'm not the only one and that it resonates with others as well. Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to take care of you? Liz and I, you know, we, we don't have children that we can rely on in old age to look after us. Am I going to be a lonely old man? Is Liz going to be a lonely old woman? Are we going to be a sad, lonely old couple? Who knows? There are many people in this world who it seems are only too willing to offer to look after us. Sometimes it can feel as if from cradle to grave, someone somewhere is going to make the promise to take care of us, certainly if we're prepared to pay them. We've only got to spend a few minutes watching the adverts on the telly to be bombarded with people offering to solve all my problems that I didn't even know I had until the moment the nice smiling person in the advert told me that they'd now found the solution to my problem that previously I was unaware of. Oh my goodness, life. And of course the reason this is such a powerful and effective advertising method is that deep down many of us latch in very easily at a subconscious level to the idea that someone somewhere will take responsibility for us, will take care of us. We long to feel safe and secure in this often unsafe and insecure world of ours. We long to perhaps recapture something of the safekeeping felt by the child we once were, with parents attentive to our every need and the next feed only a screaming fit away. But it's not just the adverts offering to pander to our every desire. We live in a society which has been inherently structured to at least offer to take care of us, the police are there to keep our streets free of crime. I see there are going to be many hundreds of more armed police on the streets of London announced this week, so that makes me feel a lot safer. Good. The health services work with the scientists to keep our bodies illness free. A plethora of diet plans and fitness classes promise to keep us young and beautiful forever from spinning to Zumba, from swimming to Pilates, we can now exercise to our heart's content and hopefully it's continued good health. I'm trying. 
I go swimming at least twice a week down just there at the oasis. I use the outdoor pool if I possibly can. don't know if anybody else ever goes there. Well, then there's the whole host of creams and ointments, promising youthful-looking skin into old age as the wrinkles just melt away, or this one weird trick that someone's grandma told them will sort everything. If you see the adverts that appear on the pop-ups occasionally online. Our insurance companies say they'll always be there for us, whatever little accidents come along. Our marriage partners promise to have and to hold us until death us do part. Our parents say they'll always love and support the little baby. And our friends say they'll stand by us come what may. The preacher on the God channel promises cheap grace and easy salvation. And we elect our politicians to represent us on their promise of taking our needs with them into government. How's all of that going, do you think? From compassionate conservatism to democratic socialism, from the nanny states to the big society, from the personal to the national, we are surrounded by people and institutions and ideologies, all of whom are all too ready to offer to care for us throughout our lives, all promising to help us keep the wolf from the door, and yet, how cared for are we really? Ultimately, we still age. We still get sick. We eventually die. I'm still four years older than I was when I arrived in London. Nothing seems to stop that happening. Marriages still fail. Parents grow frail and die. Insurance companies declare an act of God and then decline to pay out. Our streets show ample evidence of crime and all too often the bad guys get away with it. Politicians follow the whip if they know what's good for them on their way to the front bench. And televangelists get richer as their congregations pay for salvation. Did you see the televangelist in the States this week who justified his private jet because he needed to be free from distractions as he flew to his next preaching engagement so he could focus on God on his way there? Sometimes it feels as if we are like sheep without a shepherd, lost amidst a bewildering array of promises, unsure who to believe, who to distrust, uncertain who to turn for for help when the going gets rough. And let's make no mistake about it, there's plenty out there to distrust. There's plenty out there to be afraid of. The wolves of the world circle around us, just waiting for us to show our vulnerability so they can pounce. And when they do, who is there to care for us? Now, don't get me wrong. The police, even the armed ones, the health services, the politicians, our friends, our families, our loved ones, they all, at their best, do their best. And sometimes they do it very well. But ultimately, when the wolf bites, sometimes the best they can do is stand alongside us, holding our hands to comfort us as we find ourselves passing through the valley of the shadow of death facing that which we have so long sought to avoid. Mortality can seem very close. And it's at moments like this, when other helpers melt away, that Jesus' words from John's Gospel take on their most compelling meaning. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus draws a distinction between a good shepherd who protects his sheep even unto death and a hired hand, a hired shepherd who doesn't own the sheep in his care. And in doing so, he's drawing on that passage we had read from Ezekiel, 
where uh, you've got an Old Testament image of the kings as the shepherds of Israel. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're terrible, as leaders have a habit of being, particularly some of Israel's kings. And God says through the prophet, the only good shepherd is God himself. And Jesus takes that up and says, the kings of old, the people who make the promises to look after the flock now, they're just hired hands. They may occasionally do a good job, but ultimately when it's their life on the line, they'll do a runner. Jesus says, only God, only I am the good shepherd. The hired hand who is paid to protect the sheep will ultimately fail them if the danger gets too real, if the wolf gets too close. The hired hand, whoever it may be, from Old Testament king to modern day politician to policeman on the streets, is never going to exercise the same care for the sheep as the good, true shepherd who owns them and knows them by name. Do you ever hear the uh, the story of the police, inter- the apocryphal story, should I say, of the police interview exam? Uh, somebody is being interviewed. Uh, Why do you want to become a policeman? Oh, I want to. I want to serve and to protect and to look after people. Okay, well, we're going to go through some scenarios. Said the interviewer. What a, What would you do if there's a terrorist incident over there? There's a road crash over there. There's a nuclear power plant meltdown over there, and you're the person who has got to look after it all. What's your plan? And he said, take off the uniform and run away, sir. Who is going to look after us when it all goes horribly wrong? Jesus' description of himself as the good shepherd is an image of great comfort for those facing times of darkness and difficulty in their lives. And many have found great assurance in Jesus' words when they have experienced the terror of being deserted by all other earthly consolations. But I think this image is more than simply an assurance for those who need comforting. You see, the description of Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep offers a direct challenge to the way we have been conditioned to understand the very concept of care and protection. The way the world typically works is that we enter into a contract with someone who or something who is promises to take care of us. So we pay our taxes and they pay for the police and we all collectively pay for the NHS and then some of us pay even more for private health care. Not me, but some do. We pay our politicians, we pay our insurance companies, we pay for our low-fat cookbooks, our diet classes and our fitness groups. We even speak of marriage as a contract. We pay We pay, we pay, and in return, we expect to receive that which we have bought. We expect to be cared for, protected, loved until death us do part, looked after in sickness and in health. And at least some of the time, that happens. But I want to suggest that the ideology behind this kind of contractualized understanding of care in our society, I want to suggest the ideology behind it is often an ideology of death avoidance. In so much of this, we're just paying to try and cheat death for another year. We're paying to sleep safely in our beds for another night. And so we judge the success of the care we receive by whether we make it through another day unscathed or another year unharmed. And yet all the while, we creep closer to that point 
at which we will be deserted by the guardians with which we have so assiduously surrounded ourselves. I remember as a teenager struggling my way through Thomas Hardy for English A-level. The extended descriptions of furze bushes in Return of the Native didn't do a lot for me. But in uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, there's a, a wonderful moment where Tess is reflecting on mortality. And she reflects on the day of her own death. And, and she, I, I'm paraphrasing, but she says something like, you know, every day in your life, every year you pass through the day at which you're going to die, and you never know what it's going to be. You mark your birthday, but you don't mark the day of your death. And yet, the moment you die, from thereafter, as long as you are remembered, you are remembered on that day. That's the day when the world stops and says, I remember that person. Your whole life, you never know that day. Could be today, couldn't it? Could be tomorrow. We don't know. Yet all the while we creep closer to that point when we will be deserted by the guardians with which we have surrounded ourselves. And from the world's perspective, death is so often seen as the ultimate failure. It's the point at which our contracted protectors fail us. It's the point at which our medical care has run its full course. The point at which, I'm sorry, there is nothing more we can do. It's the point at which we're parted from our loved ones. Death, if you like, becomes the ultimate enemy to be avoided and postponed at all costs. But Jesus' statement in John's Gospel forces us face to face with the brute reality of death. Because the care which Jesus offers is not a care that helps us avoid death. It is rather a care which involves death. You see, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. When the hound of death finally creeps upon us and takes us in its jaws, Jesus describes himself as the one, the only one, who will not desert us, because he himself is the one who has already journeyed through death and who therefore journeys with us through our death. He lays down his own life as we lay down ours, in order that as he takes up his life again through resurrection, so we too might enter into an experience of new life which transcends death. And in the face of protection like this, the wolf of death is rendered powerless. Now, Jesus isn't simply talking here about some promise for beyond the grave. This isn't some kind of pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die vision of heaven. Rather, the new life which Jesus offers, this new quality of life which transcends even death, is something which begins very much in the here and now. Other carers may seek to help us avoid death, but ultimately they're simply postponing the inevitable whilst at best easing our journey towards it. Whereas the image of Jesus as the one who exercises care by himself dying is something of an altogether different order because it allows us to enter with him into a new quality of life where death is no longer the enemy to be feared, no longer a wolf, to be dodged. Eternal life in Christ 
is something that radically affects the way we live our lives in the present. This is one of the great themes of John's Gospel. We're going through our series of I am sayings at the moment in this early part of the year. We've had things like I am the bread of life and uh, I am the good shepherd is, is this week's. And all the way through John's Gospel, we get this idea that eternal life isn't something you go to when you die. It's something that comes into being through Christ now and in the present. Theologians have a, have a technical term for this, if you're interested. They call it realized eschatology, which just means the future becoming realized in the present. And the effect of this is one of release, as we are freed from our oh-so-human compulsion to see death as failure, to see death as defeat, to see death as the enemy. And instead, we are enabled to see our whole lives, from birth to death, as a gift from God, which has an eternal quality in Christ and is unconstrained to our three score years and ten. And the significance of this is that who we are today is therefore of eternal value. Who we are, even now, is held fast in God's eternity. Because eternal life is ours today. It is ours as a result of the care offered by the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and paves the way through death to eternity. And if eternity is at any point, it has to be now. This way of looking at the world has the potential to radically alter the way in which we structure society, particularly those parts of it which we might call our care systems. So I wonder what a health service would look like which was predicated on the notion of a good death rather than automatically seeing death as an enemy to be avoided. I know we have some in the church who work in the death end of the health service, in the hospice area. I think that is such an important perspective to take on how we live with death. Yet there are whole other areas in the health service which will see death as the enemy which we must avoid at all costs, otherwise we're going to get sued. And I wonder what a Christian view of death and good death would do if that could be more prevalent beyond the corners of the health service that have got that view of it in the hospice movement. What would it be if the health service was focused on wholeness of living rather than on crisis management or sickness management? What if the health service was about health and not sickness management? I wonder what a police force would look like, which was predicated on the concept of promoting justice rather than punishing wrongdoing. We get moments of this, don't we? Again, we get images of restorative justice programs. But then we get hundreds more policemen with guns to keep us safe. What would it be look like if we had a police force which sought restoration as its first priority rather than retribution? What if that fed through into our legal systems more than it does? 
I don't want to be too black and white about this. I know there are areas that work really well in this stuff, but I think there is something Christian theology and which the message of Jesus as the good shepherd can say to society here. And those of us who are Christians who work in these areas are absolutely vital in taking this, this idea of life eternal made real in the present through Jesus and feeding that into systems that do not readily recognize it. I wonder what a political system would look like which systematically recognized the eternal value of each human life wherever that life was located on the planet. What a political system would look like which sought peace and equality between humans as the first priority rather than the protection of national interest at the expense of those less fortunate than ourselves. Jesus, the good shepherd, has the capacity to transform society, and it does so through us. It begins with us. Those of us who are cared for by the good shepherd have entered into a fullness of life, which offers a prophetic witness to wider society that there is an alternative way of being human than that which is dictated by the scripts that society so often lives by. There is an alternative way of being human where death is not the ultimate enemy and self-preservation is not the ultimate goal. The experience of abundant life, eternal life, life in all its fullness comes to us as the gift of the Good Shepherd. But it would be wrong of me to imply that it's cost-free. Certainly Jesus never demanded money in exchange for the fullness of life that he offers and any who seek to sell the wholeness of life in Christ are, I believe, placing themselves at odds with his free gift of abundant life available to all. And yes, televangelist on the God Channel, I'm looking at you. But as I said, there is a cost. Because entering into life eternal means entering into the life of Christ, who asks each of us to give ourselves for others, just as he has already given himself for us. This is no invoice we can pay and be done with. It's rather a call on all that we are, all that we do, and all that we have. To begin to live lives dedicated to others. And to see others then entering into the free gift of abundant life that has been so graciously given to us. Jesus is very clear that the gift of life eternal is not something that people have the liberty of keeping to themselves. He's very clear. He says he has other sheep that do not belong to this fold. In the context of the first century, he was talking about the fact that the message of eternal life was not just something for the Jews, but was a gift that must also be given to the Gentiles. And in our context, it is similarly not something just for those of us who come to church Sunday by Sunday. Life eternal is not something that is reserved just for those who worship Jesus as Lord in a Christian context. It is a gift for those who have never been near a church and may never do so. This gift of abundant living that comes through the care of the Good Shepherd is good news for all if it is good news for any. And we who have received this gift are those who must take the gift and share it with others through our words, by our deeds, and with our whole lives. And as we do so, we bear witness to a new way of being human which offers the world beyond our walls a profound and prophetic message of hope. 
a message which has the capacity to transform lives and renew society. As others enter into the care of the Good Shepherd and receive the gift of life eternal which becomes real in the present and starts now. As Jesus put it slightly earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Nothing is lost. Nothing is wasted. No life is of no value. And each moment is of eternal worth. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Thanks be to God.